0: Lord it is a, a tremendous privilege to be able to pray for your people, your building, your temple, both here and throughout the world. And I want to begin by making petition that you would be very gracious to refresh all your people's hearts that are here this morning through the words of the songs that we're singing through the truths that we see in your word through the fellowship and the encouragement and the love of one another, Lord, I pray that all would uh, be touched by you in a way that would help them to endure and help them to run the race that is set before them, and I pray that they would be encouraged and built up and, and edified in all the elements of this service. But Lord, of course, we don't pray simply for the local body of believers here, but but also in throughout Portland and in Oregon, that you would continue to establish godly leaders to lead your people, men who will be faithful to your word and who will be not driven by selfish ambition, but out of a great love for the sheep and a, and a great passion to see you exalted. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to give them vision and wisdom to know how they might continue to serve you and that the individual members would take advantage of the opportunities that they have in their workplaces and uh, in their families and in their friendships to share you, Lord, that they would be able to give a defense for the hope that they have within them and that that's what would be clear in your Christians in this land is the hope they have, that it's a unique hope, not a hope that's built upon fleeting and temporal things, but hope that is um, beyond words. That's real. It's not simply an idea. That's not not aimless. But it's the foundation. It's the rock for who they are. And it's why they are able to weather the storms of life. I pray that you would make a visible testimony of your witnesses. So that people might be brought to you. To love you and treasure you. And we also pray for your work throughout the world. Particularly amongst those unreached people groups who are still in darkness who have still yet to hear of the hope that is available to them who are still worshipers of demons who are blind who who long for some sense of, of what of knowing how to escape the, the perils of death god those people like like the taliabo Lord, people in in Muslim lands, in Africa, in India, in Southeast Asia. Lord, I pray that You'd be raising up men and women who will go and proclaim Your good news to them, that Your church will be built, not just here, not just in America, but throughout the world, and that You will be exalted. And the people will praise you uh, with every tongue that's available. Every tongue. And God, that we look forward to that day where we will join with them. After our time here is past, passed, and in all of these people, including ourselves, will have more than 10,000 reasons to praise you and to bless your name. And I pray that that would be the result of our time together in your word, would be more reasons to bless your name and to give thanks to you for you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so, in your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Picture in your mind an imaginary land that is covered with thick darkness, a land where there is a complete absence of light. And because of the suffocating darkness, the residents of the land are forced to wander around aimlessly. Fear and hunger are their only permanent companions. And all that they know are these year after year after year. But then imagine that there was a rumor. Word began to spread telling of a light. A light that had been discovered upon a mountaintop miles away in the east. And there actually was a light there. It emanated from a palace on a mountain, a palace made entirely of glass, wherein a wealthy family lived. The family dwelt there in peace and security and harmony. And they were led by a humble and gentle prince who provided food and instruction and leisure for his household as they lived in the radiant light of his palace. But the light from that palace was the only light that had ever existed in that land. And as word spread about this palace of light, some of the dwellers in darkness would set out to find it, to discover if such a place were truly real. And those who were able to climb the mountain and see the palace of light soon found all their hopes dashed as they discovered shortly upon arrival that the entrance to the palace was barred. The gates were locked, and only those of the prince's household were allowed to enter in and to live there and to enjoy its blessings. And although many travelers tried to gain entrance by forcing their way in, their efforts were of no avail. The walls of the palace were impenetrable, and the dwellers of darkness had to remain in their plight. And all they could do was grieve their miserable situation and look longingly upon the people. Living in the palace. And now imagine. That one day. After many years. The prince. Of that palace came down. And he opened the gate. To those hopeless dwellers in darkness. Imagine the joy. Of those people. When they were told. That they could come in. And eat at his table. And then imagine their shock. When they heard that not only would they be allowed to eat, they would actually be allowed to live with them and to become part of the family. And then imagine their reaction when they were told they would be equal members with the family. They would have the same rights, the same blessings as his children. This was the awesome news that Paul was sharing with the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's helpful to be reminded that the Jews, whom he was talking about earlier in the chapter, had been instructed from the beginning of the nation of Israel to be utterly distinct from all people groups. Everything about the nation of Israel was to be different. This is one of the main points of the book of Deuteronomy. Israel was to avoid assimilation with all the other peoples around them. They were were to be utterly distinct. And it was okay for Gentile peoples to assimilate with them. In fact, they were encouraged to allow strangers and sojourners to dwell among them. But the Jews were not allowed to embrace any sort of Gentile worship practice, which at that time period really kind of embraced everything. They weren't allowed to embrace political structures of the Gentiles, the Gentiles' clothing, diet, even their family values. They were to be utterly distinct as a people, separate Holiness was essential to being an Israelite. And one of the best sections that summarizes reason for separation between Jews and Gentiles is in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, where the Lord says, When the Lord your God cuts you off before the nations whom you go in to, to dispossess, and you dispossess them and, and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I may also do the same? Um, another one, Deuteronomy eighteen nine: when you come into the land that the Lord, your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of the Gentiles. You are to be a people holy to the Lord your God. Everything about the Jews was to be distinct, was to be separate, utterly unlike the Gentiles. But as Tim explained last week, this element of cultural separation was no longer to be a distinguishing element of those who worshipped him. And this is what we heard last week, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near for through him. We both have access in one spirit To the Father. And then in verse 19, our first verse today. So then you no longer are stranger and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So The first point on the outline that I have is we are a new family in the church. We're a new family. God has established a new family in the church. So instead of being separated from Israel and God... The Gentiles, all the Gentile peoples, are now considered part of God's family. And in particular, the Ephesians are no longer strangers and aliens like they once were. So let's look at first these these two words, strangers and aliens, because they're helpful in understanding what, what it would, would have been like to be a Gentile at this time period. The word stranger more or less refers to a traveler in a foreign country, um, They would have no rights except for those that might have been agreed upon by a treaty. But it's also helpful to recognize that the word stranger uh, in these ancient languages was um, a synonym of an enemy. So they would have been viewed with suspicion. And the second word alien has a more permanent aspect than that of a, a stranger or a traveler. It refers to one who would be like a resident alien, an expatriate who was living in that other foreign land. Uh, In our day, it would be like with a visa. So both terms indicate people who have no citizenship in the country, and therefore they have no rights. Now, the thought to us of being a traveler in a foreign country might sound appealing, maybe somewhat romantic, exciting, hey, you know, we, we want to travel the world. But it was just the opposite case at this time period. Because in the ancient world, there were no international laws to protect travelers. And any time a person left their family or their home, they were at the mercy of anybody they came across. They were leaving their protection. So they'd be in a very precarious position. Consider the story of Ruth. Or what the Israelites endured when they were dwelling in the land of Egypt and they'll give you a sense of what it would be like in our own day it would be um like the the hopes of an american tourist surgeoning traveling through present day afghanistan a dangerous thing to do and this was where the gentiles were as as was stated by chris in his sermon ephesians on ephesians 2 and verse 12 gentiles were without hope and separated from God but now they were fellow citizens with the saints with all of God's household the Ephesians and all the Gentile peoples could now enjoy the same salvation privileges of all the saints who have ever lived throughout history these former demon worshipping Gentiles could now be put in the same category as men like Noah Joseph Abraham David, Elijah, Joshua. But more than that, they'd actually be considered, considered members of the family. They were fellow members of the household of God. And that word, that's translated fellow members of the household of God, literally is householders. And it comes from the Greek word for house, which is oikos, which has become a fairly familiar term, If anybody uh, enjoys Greek yogurt, it's a popular brand of Greek yogurt. And so anytime you go to the grocery store to get your Greek yogurt and you see oikos, maybe that will remind you of the blessing of being a part of the church. And this is really a central uh, word in this passage as well, because Paul repeats it. At least it's uh, words that have its root in every verse. It's repeated again and again. And it's almost like, Paul, in his mind as he's writing, uh, says you're you're part of your householders with God, and he says, oh, householders. Hey, speaking of house, let me show you how you are the house. In fact, you're the house that God is building up, that He's establishing in the church. So he just takes that word oikos and he and he makes other words that have its root to illustrate to us what it means to be part of God's family, part of His household. And so you'll see on the screen there, there's a number of, of, of words that illustrate that. Uh, the word built, structure, the verbs being built together, or dwelling place. So as Paul brings up the point that the Gentiles are now considered part of God's household, he takes this idea and he just runs with it to make his point. And not only are they new to this house, not only are they new members of this household, but they're actually part of the very structure Of this new building God is establishing. That building that we call the church. And in verse 22, the Lord calls it his dwelling place. So not only do they dwell in peace in this house, but the Jews and Gentiles are actually pieces of the house as well. Which brings us to our next verse in verse 20. The first aspect of the new building that Paul points to is the foundation The foundation of the church. He writes, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That first word, being built, again, has its root in the Greek word oikos. And what it's saying is the church is built on a solid foundation that consists of three things. The apostles, the prophets, and the principal part of the foundation, that of Christ Jesus so let's look at the first word, apostles. It's the first element of the foundation that he, that he points out. And it comes from the Greek word apostolos, which literally means those who were sent, sent once. And the apostles are usually identified with the twelve that followed Jesus, the twelve disciples, his original twelve. And they were those whom he sent out under his authority to preach the gospel to all the nations, as we see in Matthew 28. However, it's helpful also to recognize that the twelve were not the only people to have the title of apostle. Probably the most well-known is that of Paul. He calls himself one as untimely born. But he was designated as the apostle to the Gentiles, in fact. Which is why, of course, he's writing to the Ephesians. But not only was Paul given this title, the title is also applied to Barnabas. Who was sent out from the church of Antioch. To help Paul in his church planning ministry among the Gentiles. But not only Paul and Barnabas, but also James, the Lord's brother, has this title. And in Romans 16, 7, he applies the title to Andronicus. And a man named Junius. People, I'm guessing, uh, many of us have never heard of. But they were apostles. And apparently these were men like Barnabas who had been deployed from their local church, sent out to continue this work of spreading the gospel to people who had not yet received it. And, of course, these men would not have the same authority as the original 12. They would not have the authority even as Paul, who had been directly commissioned by Christ. Yet they would have had significant authority on, amongst these new people whom they were preaching the gospel to because they would be the ecclesiastical experts, the theological experts in these, amongst these new people groups. They would be laying the foundation with the gospel and with the doctrine that they had also learned from the churches that they had sent out. And I believe that these are the kinds of apostles who are being referred to here in Ephesians chapter 2, but also in Ephesians chapter 4. They served as foundations to the church because they were the first men sent out to these people groups to hear the gospel. And the second word is the word prophets, and they're frequently mentioned along with the apostles. And in fact, in the book of Ephesians, the apostles and prophets are mentioned together three times. Which gives a hint that their ministries were somehow linked, at least to some extent. And the word literally means those who speak forth or proclaim. And there are many references to prophecy in the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, the prophets were those who delivered the word of God to people, who, the people Um, who God uh, spoke directly to and who would reveal his will and his revelation to. And they would bring uh, these prophecies to God's people, instructing them how to live, calling them to repentance or often uh, revealing their future plan, God's future plan for the nation. And they did this again by receiving direct revelation from God. And they were to speak word for word every word that God directed them to speak. Peter clarifies this point in his book. This is Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. He says this, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So they were speaking word for word, not of their own will, but exactly as God had instructed them to speak. And so beyond proclaiming God's will, they also would have apparently uh, told the future. And that's what the, the prophet Agabus does in Acts 11. And he's also mentioned in Acts 21. He, he proclaims what's going to happen uh, in Jerusalem. There's a famine that's coming upon him. Also later on in Acts, he, he prophesies that the apostle Paul is going to be brought in chains to Jerusalem and later on into Rome. And so it's logical to conclude that the prophets in the New Testament functioned very similarly to the way, or I would say very, exactly the same way as the Old Testament prophets did. So, because when the early church began, the, the canon of Scripture, all the Scriptures had not been compiled. Even the recognized scriptural documents, such as the Gospels or the Epistles, um, the Epistles, they hadn't been mass-produced. I mean, they didn't have copy machines like we have today. They, they would have been around, but not every church would have had a copy. And in time, this eventually happened. But up until that time, how were the people to know what God's will was in a certain situation? It's easy for us. We have the Bible. But what of these new people groups that the gospel was going out to? So unless you had an apostle or a, a prophet present, you wouldn't know what God's will would be. And so it was merciful of God to grant some people this gift of prophecy so that they would know his will and his purpose could be established. And those gifted would receive this immediate revelation from God and proclaim his will for the immediate circumstances in question. So I think the best way to understand apostles is that they were men who were sent out from Jesus and that later on from from the church to proclaim the gospel to unreached people groups, and that the prophets were believers who had received direct revelation for the purpose of helping people understand and know what God's will would be before the scriptures had become available. And the third element in this foundation is, of course, the most important, right? It's the one we're most familiar with, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So recall again that Paul is describing the structure of the church, and he's been talking about the foundation that's laid. He says part of the foundation of the church has been established by the the, the giving of the apostles and having prophets, but the key point, the, the most important part of this foundation is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. This is an interesting term because cornerstone is actually a word that Christ uses. It's an illustration that Christ uses to describe himself. In Matthew 21, verse 42, Christ begins to quote one of the Psalms, and he proclaims this. He says, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, Jesus' point here is that the builders of the church were trying to establish God's kingdom. I shouldn't say the church, the the builders. He's talking about the Jewish leaders, so they wouldn't be thinking so much of the church. But they were trying to establish God's kingdom. However, they rejected the most important stone of all, the cornerstone, because they saw him as worthless and even destructive to their aims. So the most important piece of the structure they were trying to establish, they threw out. But what they considered worthless... We, the church, worship. Worship. One of complete worth. The rejection of Jesus as the cornerstone is wild to consider. Especially when you recognize that it's the cornerstone that was the first stone laid in a building. And the builder would actually use it as a standard for placing all the other stones in that building. It would be the standard for the bearings of the walls as they would go up. It was the principal stone that every other stone in the building would be measured against. So you can see why this metaphor is so fitting of Christ. Jesus himself is the beginning of God's new household. Without Christ, none of us have salvation. None of us are a part of the church. He has to be there. Because it's by his death and his sacrifice for us, taking the penalty that we deserve, that all of us get access into his kingdom. But it's only because of him. So you have no Christ, you have no cornerstone, you have no building. He is the foundation of the church as well. And he's also the standard by which each of us stones are shaped. See, without Jesus, you have no new building, you have no new church, you have nothing. Moreover, any stone that is not being shaped into conformity with Christ the cornerstone is going to be unfit for the building, and it needs to be thrown out. So that cornerstone is necessary, both for for the foundation, as well as the superstructure of the church. So again, in verse 20, the focus is on Christ, the cornerstone, as being this principal part of the foundation. In verse 20, he's talking about the foundation that's being laid. And Christ is the most principal part of that foundation. And then in verse 21, Paul continues this metaphor of Christ as the cornerstone, And by which all the other stones in the building are going to be measured against, are going to be tested to make sure they're in line with it. So it's a second use of the word cornerstone. And that's what he talks about in the third point, the formation of the church, the formulation of the church. Paul writes, "...in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord." See, Paul likens the church to a building that's being built by a builder through the individual placement of stones that will ultimately fit together to comprise an entire building. And as he builds, this builder analyzes each stone that he picks up to try and see how it's going to fit. He's got to measure it and then try to fit, okay, what's the right placement for it into this wall of the building. Each piece gets tested against the cornerstone. And it gets shaped according to the need of the building. So imagine that you, you, you go into uh, Home Depot next week, because you're, you're going to get some, you're, you need to buy a new hammer or something. And as you're walking by the aisles, you, you, you see this display. And there in this display is Bob Vila telling you how to build a wall. And he says that this wall is the church. Imagine him saying, okay, he says, he picks up a stone. He's there on that screen. And he says, okay, I've got to build a wall. I have this stone. How am I going to get this stone to fit into its place in the wall? Well, first, what I'm going to do is I'm going to measure it against the cornerstone. I'm going to make sure it fits right in line with the rest of the building. Then I'm going to find just the right niche for it and place it here. However, we see that this stone needs a little bit of work. It needs some help in order to get it to fit right. So I'm going to take this other stone and I'm going to blunt its edge a bit, kind of smooth it out so it'll fit where it needs to go. And then I'm going to take this other stone and I'm going to rub it against it to to polish it and to make it smooth. And then I'm going to take another stone and I'm going to set this stone in place with this stone so it gets to be where it needs to be in the In the building. And after working it over a bit, and all the other stones likewise, this wall will be established. And that's really what Paul is saying. Each stone is utilized with every other stone as it's measured against the cornerstone, and the whole building grows together as each stone is fit together. Just as Paul says the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. And note what he says, it's the whole structure. Note the focus on the whole structure. See, Paul is focusing not just on one stone. In Paul's mind, he's focused on the entire building. The the goal, the long-term goal. So he's not thinking about just the individual sanctification of believers, but the sanctification of the church, the church growing in holiness. See, we do tend, when we think of sanctification, we tend to think of an individual sanctification, usually our own sanctification, right? And we need to recognize that the, that the focus, the eternal purpose, is, is, as Paul's been explaining in Ephesians, is on the whole church, not just on individuals. And really, in this context, the sanctification of one individual is relatively insignificant when you think that it's about the unit as a whole. Corporate growth is the aim of the church, and not just the local church, not just one denomination, not just the church in one country, but the church in every part of the world, and not just the church now, but the church throughout time. Paul had in mind the building of the whole structure from Pentecost until Christ's return. That was his aim, that every part of the building would be presented maturing Christ. That was the aim of his life. That's what what Paul spent his life and his blood pursuing. That the whole church would be built up. That each stone would be set apart as holy and sanctified as the whole church became sanctified. The goal of the church is holiness. And again, not simply the individual holiness of each member, but really corporate holiness. The holiness of all of us. The spiritual, that's what I mean by holiness, the spiritual maturity of all of us. That we would all be like the cornerstone, in line with the cornerstone. So consider some of these principles to take away uh, regarding this understanding of the church. If the focus of the church is the building up of the whole edifice, what are its implications for us? So next slide, if you would. Uh, First of all, this passage demonstrates that each and every individual member is significant. Not just the leaders or the popular, the easy to get along with, but everybody. We all need to be very interested in the needs of the poor, the insignificant, the weak, The unimpressive. Because we're all a part of this building up. Secondly, it also demonstrates the relative insignificance of each individual member. See, there's this common misconception in the church that the church is here to meet my needs as an individual. And there's, this is probably, I would say, at least in my experience as an elder at our church, um, The main reason, at least that we've had, why people have left. They come to us and they say, the the church just isn't meeting my needs. And so they go to a church they feel like will do that better. It's rare, obviously, for, for me, at least in my case, for people to come to me and say, we think the Lord's moving us to a different location because we think we can be more strategically used. Typically, that's not what's said. Instead, it's, we just want something else for us and our family. We tend to think of churches as clubs we join, not the front lines of a battlefield. And I think this is also helpful to see in, in how we respond to guests in a church. Um, and I would say this is mostly um, the fault of church leaders. Uh, because the tendency often in, in, in is when a, when a guest comes to the door, there's this pressure that church leaders have to, to build a big church. So the more people you have... The more you can do as a church, and the more, the more faithful, therefore, the more significant you are. So if you have a big church, then that's the, that's the real test of faithfulness. And so there's this pressure. Okay, if you have a guest, you've got you to gotta do whatever you can to meet their needs, to, to get them to want to stay. It's, it's similar to the, the Nordstrom mentality, which is often what's pitched in church growth seminars. you just got to do everything you can to make people feel comfortable and valuable. And they 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 they, they pitch it as it's seen as a it's kind of like a a foot washing, right? This is the way you just meet people's needs, and that's there's nothing wrong with that, right? We want to serve guests, we want to be incredibly loving, but if but what's different about the church than a, a store is that the purpose of the church is to love people, not to see them as patrons. Right. The, the goal is not on the. The focus is not on the individual, really, in that aspect. In, in fact, you're just using that individual to accomplish the aim of your corporation. And so it shouldn't be a surprise when people leave after they stop feeling their needs being met. But what would it look like if a church viewed its guest as one whom God had sent to it to encourage it, to edify it? It was one whom the Lord Himself had sent as an encouragement. They would see it as an addition, even if it's only a temporary addition, to help encourage that body where they're attending. They would they, they would be appreciated and loved because of what they were going to offer, or they'd be seen as okay. This is somebody we need to care for, uh, just just because we love them as being part of the of the same end that we're trying to accomplish. Like when when reserves on a battlefield uh, come to battle-wearied soldiers, those soldiers don't look at them and say, oh, great, the reserves are here. Let's treat them like kings. Right? And the reserves wouldn't want that either. They're like, give me a gun. Help me fight you guys along with you. But they're also extremely appreciative. They're excited. Great. There's more people to help us accomplish the task ahead of us. But again, the goal is is about the task, accomplishing the mission. It's not about just meeting the needs, these felt needs. Now that's going to happen, right? A soldier gets wounded. The rest, you know, you call for a medic, you bandage up the wound or whatever. Um, Some of you know that I'm pursuing chaplaincy uh, with the Navy. And one of the things that chaplains often do is they'll go to the front lines in the battlefield in in Iraq or Afghanistan. and, And the soldiers love them even if they're not Christians, because they're often carrying care packages, right? And they're just encouraged by the presence of a chaplain because even though this isn't a guy that's going to fight beside us, chaplains can't bear arms, they recognize, hey, this is a person that's here for us, to care for us, right? And so they're welcoming, they're excited because this is a person that's going to help us accomplish this need. They're not a person that they say, hey, we can utilize this guy to to meet our own ends. (laughs) You know, let's, Let's send him out as, 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 as a reconnaissance and um, he'll accomplish our purpose. No, they, they're valued as a person, as an individual. And even you say, okay, that works for an unbeliever, that illustration, but, but what about an unbeliever? What if we have an unbeliever come in as a guest? Well, similarly, if you're on a battlefield and, and somebody from the enemy comes over and says, hey, I'm thinking about defecting. You know, you're not going to be angry at the person, but you're going to give them Uh, You want to convince them of the joys of fleeing the tyranny of Satan. And you're also probably going to see them as a future asset to your cause. Hey, this is a person that I'd love to see part of this body. But again, it's it's, it's for the ultimate goal of seeing Christ honored, Christ glorified. It's not about just bringing numbers into the church. uh, Thirdly, recognize that each stone is important, but only the cornerstone is vital. And this is just emphasizing the previous point as well. Um, it's not just it, it, uh, it's not just the Christian leaders in a church that are important, but every port, every part of the church is important. You know, Jesus died and rose again. Paul died. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, great church leaders throughout time have died, and you know what? The church keeps going on. Because God's accomplishing his purpose through the whole every member, the whole body, to accomplish his purpose. Fourthly, each individual needs to pursue holiness. In other words, your holiness affects the rest of the body. Because again, the goal is for the whole the growth of the whole body. Also, each individual member needs each other member. And this is this is really why attendance and commitment is important, either to the community group that you're a part of, if you're part of one. Or uh, commitment to just coming to church every week—it's not important, as, as uh, some uh, Christian faith would suggest, that it's at, that you get sanctified just by taking part in in the service and by taking part of the sacraments. That that's actually what sanctifies you. That's not the reason. The reason is because the rest of the body needs you. We need one another because we're in this together. We need one another to help one another grow, to encourage. And to edify one another. Each of us is dependent upon each other other member. And so when you're gone, in a sense that hurts both you and the church. Each of us also needs to recognize our importance in the building up of the church. It personalizes the previous point. Each of us needs to be involved in ministering. Not necessarily in a ministry, a program, but ministering to other people in the body of Christ. There needs to be some way that you're seeking to encourage, to come alongside. And there's various ways that you can do that, right? But we need to be ministering in the body. The last point, the aim of every individual church should be the maturity of the universal church. And worldwide evangelism. The aim is for completeness. It's not just what's going on here at Grace and Truth or in my church crossway back in seattle it's not just the church in the portland area but the aim of every local body of believers at some level should be on how can we accomplish the great commission that christ has sent us out for and you know what that that could just be praying for it you know that that could be supporting a missionary I mean, there's lots of different ways you can do that but that should be in some element in our minds how are we trying to get this ultimate aim accomplished of the building up of the whole body This brings us to the fourth point in my outline, and the final point. It's very connected to the third point, which is the function of the church. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The function of the church is to be a dwelling place for God. And again, it's the universal church. We think about it, God is dwelling in the universal church. All believers everywhere throughout time. The aim is for completeness. And God is creating the church so that his spirit would dwell among men. Again, that dwelling place, that word dwelling place is the word oikos. God is making it his house. It's to be a living temple. And Consider the implications of that. Especially at this time period. What, when, they, when the Ephesians heard temple of God, what would have come to their mind? Ephesus was known for the great temple of Diana where uh, they would practice their religion. The Jews, of course, would have thought of the temple as being that place that they had built by their own hands and that had been destroyed in time. But Paul is now saying that God dwells with us, a corporate body of believers throughout time. Totally different concept than both the Jews or the Gentiles were familiar with. And consider the Jews' reverence for the Old Testament temple. Consider their love for it. Their joy for it. The grief they felt when part of it was destroyed. Consider the psalmist's praise of it. And then consider that now you are part of that temple. You yourself are part of God's new temple that he is building. And then consider... So is the person next to you. And so is the person in that church across town. And so is that church, person in a church in Albania or Russia or Argentina. See, how might you change the way you care for one another or how you speak about other Christians and how devoted you are to other people groups? When you recognize that they're a portion of God's temple. They're a piece of God's temple. How should this truth affect your devotion to the charge that the church was once given? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because God is building for himself a temple to dwell in. And I would like to offer some final thoughts on how you might begin to consider these things. First question you might ask yourself is, are you a believer? Are you a believer? And if, you, if you're not, just after the service, speak to somebody honestly about that. That's okay in a sense. right? We would like you to be saved. We don't want you to perish in your sins. We want you to know the forgiveness and love that are found in Jesus Christ, but at the same time be honest about it so that so that we're able to know how we can best love you and care for you, given where you're at. Secondly, consider, are you a member? Uh, and, and if not, speak to one of the leaders about that. Um, and it's okay if you're not ready to be, but explain why so that they understand how they can best care for you and the reasons behind that. Thirdly, are you involved in a community group or regularly interacting with multiple members of the body of Christ that are outside of your immediate family? Is there a a body, uh, maybe even smaller than what you have here, of people you're regularly committed to for the purpose of seeking to encourage and love and minister to you? This isn't a requirement, but it's the easiest and most natural way for us to accomplish the goal of the church. If the church grows with the interaction of its members... The best way for that to happen is for members to spend time together when they can talk to each other. And if you're like me, uh, you can get some of that when you come to church on Sunday, but it's hard. I mean, most of my conversations are broken or, you know, small talk for me is difficult. And so it's hard to know, okay, how do I take a good conversation and really know how to best love this person? You know, if you don't know the person, you this just takes time. And so committing yourself to a smaller group of believers is one of the best ways to really accomplish this goal of seeing the church built up and as the stones get knit and fit together for the building up of the church in love. Now, fourthly, are you aware of how you need to grow? Are you aware of how you need to grow as a believer? Um, And if so, are you being helped in the process? Are you being honest with people in your community groups, with your family members? Are there there people that are coming alongside you? um, and, And Do you know what you need to help Progress in that. Fifthly, are you using your gifts and your talents and your resources for the building up of this body, for the church? And again, not for the goal of personal ambition, but utilizing your resources for the purpose of seeing the ultimate goal accomplished of God's temple being built, His church. And lastly, are you strategically seeking to share your faith with outsiders? At your work, are you being prayerful? Um, seeking opportunities to build relationships with people um, in your neighborhood, are you praying for opportunities and again meeting new people? And and, and that's hard, especially in our culture. We we're not people don't are easily warm. You know we're we're we're, we're tend to become highly suspicious. I and mean, if somebody again were to knock on your door, you know that's going to be seen as more threatening. Even if you just meet somebody in the park, if there's just that awkwardness, you know people aren't open and. And so getting to get enough trust or even enough time to be able to share the gospel with somebody can often be very difficult. And so it's not like you have to be sharing the gospel every day. But are you being strategic about it? Are you praying for it? Are you thinking about how can I seek to um, share the good news with people that I'm in contact with? Is that something you're thinking about? Again, being strategic is probably the most important element, not necessarily even... um, the accomplishment of evangelism. Of course, that's what we want. Though, I want to close um, this with just a, a, a personal illustration, not, not of mine, but of a, of a person who is in one of our small groups at our church, a close friend of mine and my wife's Julie. Um, her name is Tamar, and she um, married one, one of our good friends, and she grew up in Israel in a Christian family. And attended a church there. Her father was actually a pastor. Her parents had moved in, uh, from Romania, I think, shortly after World War II. They had moved out of Romania and actually um, met in Israel. And he had decided to pastor a church. And he's one of the few pastors, Christian pastors, in Israel. Very few Christians in Israel. And so she grew up experiencing quite a bit of persecution for her faith. And she would tell of some of the hardships with that and that that her and some of the other Christians had experienced in being a Christian in the land of Israel. However, the result of this persecution was that so many members of their local body of believers in their town uh, were in uh, inextricably close to one another. Whenever they would have a church event, the, the members would stay for hours and hours and they would just hang out. Church would often last all day. They would meet in the morning. They wouldn't go home in the evening. Even on weeknights, they would spend time with one another. And part of that is because it was only in the church they actually felt accepted and loved and cared for. In in every sense, it was their family. It was their comfort. People's lives revolved around the church in a good way. Now, to some people here, you might say, man, that sounds awfully cult-like that your life revolves around the church. But the difference between a cult and a richly loving family should be obvious. Right? A cult seeks to control. It seeks to administer and administrate the lives of its people. But people seeking to love and comfort and care for one another is entirely different. It's their love that compels them to devote their lives to such a purpose. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 24, Paul says this to the Corinthian church, he says not that we lorded over your faith, I'm not trying to control you guys, he says, but we're workers with you, I love this, for your joy. We're workers with you for your joy. That's what the church is for. That's what you're here for. Workers with one another for one another's joy. And that's the aim. And it's been my prayer for you that God would so bless Grace and Truth Bible Church, that you would be known as a church for your love and your devotion for one another. And not just in Hillsboro and Oregon, but unto the ends of the earth. That you would be known for your devoted and complete and sacrificial love for Christ in this church. So, to that end, let us pray. Lord, I do pray for that outpouring of your Spirit that demonstrates itself in love. Lord, the church in America does so function more like an, an institution or a business, and so, it's, so it's, it's almost hard to imagine what it would look like to function as a family. And even a family that's devoted to other members of the family in other parts of the world. And I pray that you would give just personal vision to each member here to know how they might help accomplish your purpose for the church, both in edification and in evangelism. And that you would would give them this, this passionate desire to see one another built up in joy. That as they see one another in the week, that their, their first thought would be, how can I help this brother or sister in their joy? Or how can I, I want, I want to see my brothers and sisters because I'm so hurt. I'm so broken. I need so much help. That they would be the first people they would turn to, that you establish that sort of trust in this local body of believers. Lord, that you would give them such a, a passion for the hope that they have, that they would want to share it with their co-workers, with their family members. And of course, again, um, they would have a passion to see all nations proclaim your name and proclaim that you are glorious. And so, God, we continue in that vein. You alone are worthy of all glory, honor, and power. And it's for you and the work that you did in dying upon the cross, Jesus, that we have any hope. And it's your name we proclaim during this time. All glory and honor and praise be to you. In your name, amen.